Be seated. That's enough having fun. That's plenty of that. Thanks to Mick. Can we give him... Yes. Um, He'll be very mad at me about that, um, that I did that. But the truth was, that was a lot of work, and it was a wonderful worship experience. I hope you're able to enter into this day of celebration of the resurrection of Christ. So we're going to go someplace today that might be a little unusual for an Easter. So I'm just going to give you that warning right up front, and then we'll see how we get there. Can we get the first slide up there? Oh, anybody recognize that? How many Losties were in here? People who watch Lost. That was a six-season series. It was by far the most expensive television series that was ever made. I don't know if you knew that. Because they did it in Hawaii. They had all those people, crazy things going on. It was an amazing thing. And there was this interesting interplay that happened in between science and faith, in between good and evil, in between being found because part of the time they would flash back or flash forward or flash sideways. There was an interesting interplay between time and space. And it was a fascinating show. I didn't watch a lot of it, so I was usually lost when I was watching it, of course. But it gave us a platform uh, to consider something being lost. Something lost. And actually, it was set in such a tropical setting. I don't know if it reminded you of anything, but often as they were bumbling around in there, in the beautiful parts of it, it reminded me of the Garden of Eden. And I don't know if you remember, there is a critical phrase that happens. The couple is in there, they're enjoying perfect life together and a perfect relationship with their father. And they make a decision, and in the decision they leave that relationship behind. And I don't know if you remember the call of the father as he came walking through the garden. Adam, where are you? Adam had been lost. Now, it wasn't that God couldn't physically find Adam. It was separation had occurred. There was distance. There was lostness. And we're going to pursue something today that uh, is a very interesting approach to being lost. Jesus came on the scene thousands of years later after the uh, creation picture. And he came and he told a number of stories. Uh, Scott read today from the book of Luke. Luke has 17 specific parables. They're just stories that give us a context and help us understand some things. So there's a period of time when some of the, the ruler guys, the religious people, came up to Jesus and they're watching him. And Jesus was interacting with the people who were not the religious ones. He was interacting with the ones that the Pharisees, who were the religious guys, he was interacting with the ones that they would have considered considerably lost. They would have considered them there. The tax collectors, the sinners, the the publicans. And I don't know, maybe we've got the light show going on. It's awesome. I don't know what's causing that. But if it happens, it's, it's all for effect, just so you know that. And so as they're communicating with him, they start complaining to Jesus because he hangs out with the lost ones. And Jesus doesn't tell them one story. He doesn't tell them two stories. He tells them three stories in a row about lost items. If you'd like to, if you brought your own Bible, bring your, open your Bible to Luke chapter 15. If not, reach in front of you in the pew there. There's a black book. That's a Bible. 
back page 60 in the back section of that book is where we're going. Page 60 in there, Luke chapter 15. So Jesus is hanging out with the sinners and the IRS guys, and the, uh, the Pharisees are mad about it. I won't read all of the stories in here, but one of them that Jesus reads to them is the story of the lost sheep. He tells about a shepherd. He says, look, shepherd loses a sheep. What does he do? He leaves the 99 who are safe, and he goes out, and he finds the lost one, and he comes back celebrating that. Then he tells about a lost coin. A woman has ten coins. She loses one in her home. She turns on all the lights. Maybe that's part of the effect for the light show here. I'm not sure. Turns on all of the lights, and she sweeps the house thoroughly till she finds the lost coin, and she celebrates. And then he tells this story. Luke chapter 15, verse 11, is where we're going to read through here today. Jesus said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. A very dishonoring thing. Out of time, out of place, he says to the father, Give me what's mine. So the father says, Okay. He divided his wealth. The word is actually life. He divided his life and gave part of it to the younger son. Not many days later, the son gathers his stuff together. He goes on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. This is the phrase where the prodigal son, the famous title for this story, comes from. Squandered, spending lavishly. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred. By the way, quick aside, you never know when the famine's going to hit, do you? So a severe famine occurs, and it was in that country, and he began to be impoverished. He didn't have food. So he went, he hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country. He sent him into these fields to feed swine. Worst case scenario for a Jew feeding pigs. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods from the swine, but no one was letting him have any. But when he came to his senses, a critical phrase in this story, the son realizes, he said, hey, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread to eat? And here I am dying of hungry. I'm going to get up. I'm going to go to where my father is, and here's my plan. I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. The son caught on to the fact that this was about the relationship with God as much as it was about his relationship with his family. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. In other words, he wouldn't have even lived there on the property. He would have lived off of the property with the hired men and earned his way back to pay back what he owed his father. That was his plan. Look what happens. He got up. He goes to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt, the word in the Greek here is gut-wrenching, fall-over compassion for his son. And he ran No adult paternal leader in a Jewish fatherly clan would pick up his robes and run like a middle school girl. None of them would have done that. He ran to his son. And he kissed him. I imagine the Pepe Le Pew. That's what this says. He kissed him repeatedly. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you. And you've heard the story. But... This is super important here. The father 
hardly even lets the, the son get a word out of his mouth. And by the way, he's not even waiting for him to repent. He says to his servants, go get the best robe, the primary one, the one for the oldest son. Bring that robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it, let us celebrate, for this son of mine was dead. He's come back to life again. He was lost and he's been found. He was lost. They were, Now he's found. They began to celebrate. Now here's Act 2. His older son, the father's older son, was in the field. And when he came by the house, he could hear the music and the dancing. He's like, I wasn't invited to this. So he calls a servant. What's going on? And the servant said to him, your brother has come home. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. This word means secure. It's the exact same word that the Apostle Paul later uses to describe sound doctrine. It's the exact same word as that. This is now he's good to go. He's been received back. But look at this response, verse 28. The older son became angry. There are three words for the action of anger in Greek. One of them is a knee-jerk reaction, which is kind of understandable. That's not this word. This word is a patterned, regular, habitual response, and it's never approved of in the Scripture. His normal response was he became angry and responded to that in that way. And he would not go into the party. His father came out and began pleading with him, comforting him. And he answered and said, Look, now the second son who has said to him something very, very disrespectful. Look, you, I have been here for many years serving. The, this, this word is actually slaving for you. He's not been slaving. He's the oldest son. He's second in charge. But I've been slaving for you, and I've never neglected one commandment of yours. And yet, you've never given me a young goat so that I could celebrate or have a party with my friends. When this son of yours, you hear the derision in that, came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. Do you hear the honor and respect even at an opportunity when this father could have said, Are you kidding me? Son, all I have is yours. You've always been with me. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and he has begun to live. He was lost. And actually the word there means he was destroyed. But now he is found. Let's explore a little bit of what's going on here. Having read this, of course, you know, fathers and sons have a very unique relationship. I'm sure you understand that. I get things from my sons for Father's Day, and, you know, very often I'm glad that my kids remembered me, but at the same time I'm usually pretty disappointed that they really think I dress like that. You know what I mean? So <laughs> we, we fathers and sons have bizarre relationships anyways. But here's the first thing. Let's look at, I've got a couple of illustrations. We could change the slide if you can, Miss Wendy. A couple of illustrations. You might, hopefully can see this, don't tread on me, Gadsden flag. Don't have a lot of time for the story. But this represents, this combined with this image, represents for us the younger son. The idea of freedom. 
Freedom. Freedom is a blessing from God. It's a wonderful idea. Liberty is awesome and great. It is. Uh, Benjamin Franklin came up with the idea. I don't know if you remember this, but in the 1750s, the Brits sent over a bunch of convicted felons. Sounds like how they started Australia, doesn't it? Anyways, he sent a bunch of convicted felons over here, and Franklin wrote an article saying, we should send them rattlesnakes back in thanks and in return for that. And the whole snake idea came from that. And this little phrase here says, don't tread on me. In other words, if you could put it in a phrase that maybe even the kids could remember and, and relate to, you ain't the boss of me, right? And that's really the communication that's going on. The younger brother has this sense of freedom. Now, there's some traps with liberty and freedom, though. Potential traps. One of them is conflict. Can't everybody have their way? Right? If everybody has their way, what do we have? Anarchy. Everybody is bumping into each other, and eventually nobody gets their way. The second potential trap is this idea that I will self-actualize. I will just come in, I will go somewhere and become myself. In fact, it's now even gone into a whole spiritual context where I find myself spiritually, because I'm a spiritual person, it's a trap. It's a trap. The trap of free will is very clearly acted out there. The third thing is this narcissism that says either, poor me, I didn't get enough, or what about me, Father, give me what is mine. These are potential traps. You probably can relate. Right now, you probably have somebody in your head, it may be you, who is there with the younger brother, said, I'm going to go find myself. I'm going to go make this stuff happen. I'm the man. Give me what I need and I'll go. The second character is this. We have this concept Remember this younger brother. The second character is the older brother. This is a little harder to see, but this is a big scales of justice. We could change to the next slide if you can there, Miss Wendy. This, uh, this goddess was actually char- uh, put on the Temple of Zeus, 500 B.C., holding scales and representing the concept of justice. The Romans took her and made her justicia, where we get the idea of weighing two pieces of information in a case to find out whose weighs the most, who has the most credibility in reality, justice. And the older brother represented that. Father, I've never even broken one commandment of yours, right? Justice. Now, there's some traps, however, and I'm going to spend a little bit more time here because I have the sneaking suspicion that there may be more older brothers in this room today than there are younger brothers sneaking suspicion. First of all, one of the traps is guilt and fear-based decisions. The older brother who has all of this often lives with a great sense of responsibility and guilt. Brennan Manning in his fabulous book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, tells a story about sitting down in a stadium seat at Yankee Stadium on a Friday afternoon as a young man. Fully aware, as a Catholic, he can't eat meat. Sits there, starts to dream because he can smell the hot dogs, right? He's thinking, I should go get a hot dog. Then he starts doing the math. Now, is that a venial sin or is that a mortal sin? How big a trouble will I be in? Can I go just 
tell the priest and then talk myself out of it after I eat one? Now he's thinking to himself, wait, maybe because I'm even thinking about it, I've already sinned anyways, so I might as well go get a hot dog, right? And fulfill what I was already thinking and dreaming about. Then he's like, but wait. And literally within, as he says, within five minutes, I've committed enough sins to land in five million years of purgatory. (laughs) Haven't even left his seat yet, and he's in trouble. This is a potential trap The justice, the awareness, the constant trying to say, I can do that. It's a potential trap. It's actually, ladies and gentlemen, where what happens in our churches, where we end up with a culture of gossip, undermining, backbiting, attacking, because we're looking for other people that don't live up to what we know the law says. And as soon as we find them, what do we do? Bam. Enemy. Take them out. We don't even have the uh, sense to have a little bit of grace. It's also what causes a lot of the scandalous falls. You'll see somebody, they'll be a solid follower, following the law, doing what they should do for maybe decades, and all of a sudden, the bottom falls out, and they're in all kinds of trouble and sin, and they made a bunch, of, a whole series of terrible decisions. How does that happen? It's because they've been riddled with guilt trying to live up to the standards that they know for all of these years. And it's not possible. A second trap is this, moral conformity. So I know what this is. And instead of actually ever entering into the heart or the spirit or anything of what was going on with the law, I will just simply conform to the outside of it. You may remember the the, uh, character Salieri in the Amadeus movie. How many saw that movie? Salieri, or saw the play or read the book or whatever. Salieri was the incumbent composer, and he had prayed and said, God, I will be a moral, moral, wonderful person if you just make me a world-famous composer. I will live up to all of that stuff. Then Mozart shows up, and Mozart lives like this guy. He's running around with women, he's living in craziness, and Mozart writes 50 times better music than Salieri. And Salieri sees him immediately as the enemy. He even makes this one really insightful phrase where he says, I felt pretty good about myself until it showed up. Moral conformity is a potential trap. And I'll tell you, the lostness of the adult older brother is far more sinister than the lostness of the freedom brother. Now, the third thing is this, anger and indignation. I pointed out the fact that this was a pattern as you read the story. He had been used to this. And there's a, uh, as you think about Easter and the resurrection here, you may say to yourself, well, what difference does that make? And how could I react in such a way? You may have found yourself wishing Jesus wouldn't have come back. If you're too much of an older brother, watch the story of the Pharisees. That was their worst-case scenario. And as a writer in a book titled We Are the Pharisees put it, sometimes gnats feel just as big and even more important than camels do. And you know what that reference is if you know Jesus' teaching. So uh, brothers, we've got two brothers. The freedom brother, the younger brother, and the law 
brother, the older brother. And you know, brothers are funny, even in legal scenarios, because you heard about the one who, the two twin brothers who robbed a bank together, and then after they were caught, they finished each other's sentences. Oh, yeah, it took a little bit. It rolled across. That was pretty good. All right. Now, the last area that I want us to think about is the common ground that these guys have before we bring Jesus into the equation here. First of all, there's an illusion of control. Do you remember that they had a deep desire to get out from underneath the pressure of the Father? And that is an illusion that says, if I control this, I will get a better outcome. That's a potential danger, a very strong potential danger. And the second one is this. They were desperately lost, and neither of them knew it for a long period of time. We have a son, Elliot, who when he was two years old, we were in Florida, he walked out with a couple other kids and whatever to go out and play at the beach. We, the adults, came outside, no Elliot. Now, you know what that feels like. And we're starting them now, this mad scramble and the mad search as we look for Elliot. Where is he? Well, we go right to the water. We see no evidence of anything out there. Whew. Now, where did he go? Did somebody grab him? Whatever. Now we start on this crazy scramble, and your mind starts going into all these things. Meanwhile, Elliot had gone next door, found a pickup truck, crawled up the back of the tailgate, flopped over into the back of the pickup truck, and couldn't get out. He was completely lost, yet blissfully unaware, having a ball with whatever the junk was in the back of that pickup truck, just playing, having a great old time like nothing was going on. And a lot of times, ladies and gentlemen, the lostness is equal whether you're this guy or this guy, and you're blissfully unaware of the lostness. Now, you might say this, well, you know, I sound a little bit more like the younger brother, but I'm a good guy. I've been nice to my neighbor. I am pretty much, you know, when, when I don't kick dogs, I recycle. Those are good things. But I remind you of this. The, the father said of the son, he is lost and he is destroyed and dead, basically. There's a danger there. You may say, well, I relate a little bit more to the older brother, but I'm sure I'm saved. I have walked down an aisle. I have prayed prayers. I have gone on a mission trip. I've even cast out demons in Jesus' name. Does that sound familiar at all? You could still be, as the father said, as he had to go out and find his son, you are still outside, son. You're still outside. That could be you. Now, Jesus enters. The, in truth, the true prodigal son is Jesus. He doesn't fill it in on his own account in the story as we read it. But as it turns out, Jesus paid the price for both of those brothers. He was the extravagant spender. He was the finder of the lost. A couple of chapters later, when he encounters Zacchaeus, another tax collector, he makes this fascinating statement to him. Zacchaeus, I am come to seek and to save the lost. That is my primary job. That's what I'm here to do. 
And Jesus also, amazingly, had this ability to combine and reconcile and value both sides of this equation. Liberty and justice. This story may illustrate it for you. There's a a famous man in the 30s, Fiorello LaGuardia. You may have been to his airport. (laughs) He was the mayor in New York City. And as mayor during the Depression and during the First World War, he would do very interesting things to keep the people happy. And so he would regularly read the funny papers on the radio. He would go down into different places and, and help with the soup kitchens. And he also, being a trained lawyer and judge, would show up randomly at the municipal courts, go in, dismiss the judge for the day, give him the day off, put the judge's robes on, and hear the cases, the misdemeanor cases. And one day, a woman came in and a man who owned a bakery. And the baker was accusing the woman of stealing bread from his bakery. So... LaGuardia asked the woman, tell me your story. What's going on? She was an older lady, very frail. She said, I have no money. We're in the Depression. It makes sense. And my family has no food, and I was trying to steal one loaf of bread to feed my family. And LaGuardia heard the whole case. He waited out. He looked at the justice side of it. He knew the law. And he said, she absolutely, unequivocally is guilty And he levied her a $10 fine, which might have been a million dollars for her. And he hit the gavel. And then he stood up and he took the robes off. And he reached into his pocket and got his wallet out and pulled $10 out. And walked down and paid the bailiff. Then he said to everyone in the courtroom, and I fine everybody in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a city where a woman has to steal bread to survive. And he rounded up $47.50, even from the baker who had accused her, and left the woman not only with her debt paid, absolute justice, but absolute grace and freedom. And he got it, and he communicated it. And ladies and gentlemen, you may think I would be here to say, just clean up your act. Quit being this brother. Quit being that brother. Trying will never get you anywhere. I promise you that. I promise you. First of all, you must recognize that you are lost. And start to ask the question, how do I not be lost anymore? Second of all, you have to find out what happened in the dynamics of Christ's life his death, what that was the payment, and the resurrection that was one of the most materialistic things that ever happened in religious history. Christianity is not some pie-in-the-sky, hope-it-all-works-out, spiritual woo-woo thing. It's very tangible. The resurrection was one of the most tangible things that we have in our faith history. Find out about that. Find out. Go to a church. Go to a website. Read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Do something to find out why Jesus was here. And third, start the direction of appreciating your brother 
If you're this guy and you keep doing this to this guy with judgment, anger, resentment, everything else, Jesus doesn't enter that equation very well. Or if you're this guy, I've got freedom, I'm going to do what I want, I'm going to find myself. Really? You're lost. You can't find yourself. And if you're pushing this guy away, saying he's got nothing to offer, he's a hypocrite, he's the reason I'm here, Jesus doesn't enter that equation very well either. So I suggest to you today, if you've come, this is your first time that you've heard and considered, please find out more. If that's at home, if that's here, call us on the phone, check out our website, let us start a dialogue with you. Because... Ladies and gentlemen, this decision is not very much like whether you're going to buy a hot dog or not. It's much more like a marriage or a significant life event. And I suggest that you start down that trail. If you would stand together with me today. Perhaps with some time, with some energy, with some engagement with some life and hope, with some reflection, perhaps you will be able to hear and understand this great song that we already sang earlier today. And maybe this verse will mean a little bit more for us. Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that Father, thank you for sending Jesus to us, a real, live, tangible, physical human being who brought the stories, who sought the lost. And Lord, I echo, as Chesterton said when asked, what's the problem with the world? I say, me, I am. And God, help all of us to recognize that today, but not feel it in judgment, anger, resentment, or some sense of guilt, but to approach the Christ of compassion and love, embrace his death, and also understand and embrace his resurrection as our hope for the future. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.